0: You're listening to the Law & Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the difficult questions where business and the law intersect to help you run a smarter business and avoid costly mistakes. Brought to you by Verna Law PC, a full-service law firm focusing on patents, trademarks, copyrights, domain names, and advertising law. For more information, call 914-908-6757 or send an email to to anthony at vernalaw.com for more information.
1: All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Law & Business Podcast. Uh, I am Anthony Verna. With me, once again, John Eastwood, partner at Iger Law in Taipei, Taiwan. John, thank you so much for, for coming on again.
0: It's a great pleasure to be here, Anthony.
1: Thank you. We are recording... At Chatter in D.C., the only podcast studio and restaurant that I can think of. Uh, so, it's The uh, only one I've ever seen. <laughs> Claude, thank you so much for recording us today. Uh, so let's talk a little bit because I actually got this question. You and I were talking about this. And I got this question at Toy Fair. And I'm, I've been at Toy Fair for like the last decade. And I'm talking to a company and I said, uh, w- w- you know, what is your IP situation like? And they said to me, well, we filed for a world patent. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And I said, well, there's no such thing as a world patent. They go, they go no, 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 we... we um, we, we did. We filed for the world patent. And I go, no, there isn't a world patent. Oh, I just bought a unicorn
0: yesterday <laughs> and
1: I got the deed to the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I – how do we begin here? Because to me, if uh, – but I'm a practitioner, so to me, this feels so simple to say. No, there is no such thing as as a patent for the entire world. But it feels as if a lot of people think that.
0: Well, I, the first thing is that there's there's a serious educational issue involved, and and I know that in the past when I've uh, I've done some seminars, I've done some programs in the past uh, aimed at trying to help. Uh, busy managers and company owners understand a little bit about the basics of intellectual property law. And I think every one of us does this, you know, one by one when we're working with, with clients who uh, don't have a legal background, yes. is to try to bring them up to speed. You know, they, they come to us and they say, oh, I've got an awesome logo that I'm totally <laughs> going to copyright. And I've got a, a brilliant, you know, idea that I want to trademark and uh, I've also got uh, this, this invention, um, and I'm going to trademark that invention as well.
1: You know, I, I was I was uh, I was at a firm for six months about about ten years ago, and um, I, I knew I wasn't going to be there for more than six months, which was my trial period. When the one partner came up to goes, "I got to trademark this invention," or this client needs to trademark this invention. I go, "Well, that's a patent, not a trademark." And he goes, "Oh, whatever." And I'm like, <laughs> "No, not oh, whatever. You're a practitioner; <laughs> you should care about."
0: that. Well, I mean, these are fundamentals, and you know that's what's what's. Uh, You know, fascinating to me is, you know, I mean, I I realize that for the layperson, the layperson, um, they don't know much about this and you want to be kind about it in the same way that, you know, I like to think that my auto repair mechanic um, is going to be kind, uh, you know, to me. And that's why you look for somebody who's reliable and can explain these things and say, like, you know, um, you you don't want the person changing your oil to lead you astray and demand that you have to get, like, um, you know, your transmission fixed but uh you know for from the standpoint of a lawyer there's certain things that every lawyer should have and this came up in the news uh not too long ago uh with regards to uh he was just an interim attorney general uh Matthew Whitaker. he he took um took the place of of um Jeff Sessions Jeff Sessions right yes. and uh now he's been since replaced uh, with, uh, with with another with permanent Bob Barr attorney. yes right and uh, there was a company that he'd been affiliated that Matthew Whitaker had been affiliated with for about 3 years called World Patent Marketing and you know this uh this drove me nuts when i heard about this and i think this drove you nuts and that's part of why we're here
1: yes no i no it did drive me nuts when i when i looked it up and and to be honest i didn't realize uh that uh, this company existed uh, i didn't realize that he was affiliated with it until i started re- reading about it and Despite the the very large load of FTC decisions that I read i don 't get to all of them, and the fact that the FTC shut down world patent marketing totally totally got past my radar well it, they forced him to
0: to shut down and then they had to pay out like twenty six million dollars for cheating in you know these these inventors out of the millions that they thought they were going to get for registering patents and getting their licensing deals. And, you know, that's pretty rare. I mean, you know, but, but from the standpoint of, you know, Matthew Whitaker, um, he he was not just on an advisory panel for the company. He was sending out the attorney nasty grams to respond to inventors who were upset that they weren't getting or they weren't getting uh, informed about what was going on with the stuff that was supposedly done. So they were sending money. Um, I guess to this world patent yes. marketing company, yes. and the company was promising the world to them, um, <laughs> and that they were going to go protect their inventions. And in truth, they weren't filing anything.
1: Well, I, I, I mean, here's what their business model uh, included: um, the the company told all of their their um, clients, for lack of a better word, uh, that their proposed ideas um, were going to be done, were going to be reviewed by by World Patent Marketing's review team uh, because, quote, the company is so selective uh, with the ideas they choose to work with, unquote, and that uh, these uh, uh and that these inventions would uh, include a global invention royalty analysis containing a marketability study created by a Harvard University and MIT research team. Which, um, you know, where do we begin on these <laughs> strains of, of credulity here?
0: Well, you know, some of the inventions they came up with, uh, you know, were pretty <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but I, I thought, you know, you know, here's the thing. I mean... Um, The invention promotion racket is actually something that's been around since the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. And in the old days, they used to advertise in the back of Popular Science or or, you know Popular Mechanics or other kinds of magazines, and they would they would uh, you know you know right next to the folding. uh, kayak, or the um, you know the uh, the the hoverboard, you know that they
1: would you know that people X-ray vision glasses, X-ray vision glasses,
0: <laughs> and you know the you know kind of the stuff you always you'd see in a comic book, you know in. in and uh, you know, probably there was an ad for you know uh, Charles Atlas for how to make a man out of sure. you know, how to become a strong <laughs> you know using dynamic tension to make yourself into a muscle man on the beach. So what happened was that in the middle of all these ads aimed at gullible people who you know didn't realize that the plastic army men they were going to get in a little locker was were going to be about the you know the um, you know the, the the size of a. Um, of a pinky hair or something like that, <laughs> you know, it was like it was ridiculous. So you get to this, this, um, these, these ads that were placed in these magazines in the sixties and seventies, and they would say, um, yeah, "We're going to help you inventors develop your ideas, get them in the market, and turn that into money through license deals." Right. And the FTC has been shutting these down pretty actively since the nineteen seventies. And Congress even passed a law in nineteen ninety nine. Uh, called the American Inventors Protection Act that put a lot of the disclosure requirements for invention promotion firms, sure. including their success rates, uh, which in truth were pretty abysmal. Um, well, that's
1: one. That's one word for it.
0: Yeah, and and so this whole thing about like you know taking in money from inventors, barely reviewing the inventions, doing nothing about getting them registered, while demanding more and more money until these poor inventors are sucked dry. And some of these guys were—they—they they took out loans and refinanced their houses because they, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, there's nothing like throwing uh, bad money after bad money when you're, you know, when you think you're going to about to turn rich, you know. Um.
1: Uh, you know, it reminds me really of of what our jobs as lawyers are when a client comes to us with a new invention, and. I try to consult at the very beginning and, and to say, what's your business model? Mm-hmm. How do you plan to make money? Mm-hmm. What's your plan for turning this? Because even, 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 if it's, even if a patent is received in the usual way, one, here in the United States, it's two years as a fast track. So it's. <laughs> I mean, these days we're not hearing from the Patent and Trademark Office for two years on an office action. So uh, you, you're going to be you, you need to start making money. What's your your plan to start making money? And and a lot of patents just kind of sit there and lay fallow. Well, and I think I think it's important for you know
0: people to have a plan. Uh, you know, for for and they need to talk to a professional about the planning part. I mean, you save a lot of uh, initial mistakes uh, if you just you know, go and talk to a professional. Most of the time, you know, folks like uh, me and you, uh, we're happy to talk to, you know, talk to potential clients, a, you know, a bit. We don't, we're not in the habit. I mean, just like a baker doesn't give away bread. We as yes. lawyers, we don't, you know, just give them the full plan, but, you know, uh, until they're on as a client. But but to some extent, you know, the, the notion of uh, of working out a budget with a lawyer to come up with a real plan uh, for what they're going to do, and, and from a business perspective, what do they want to do? I mean, they're like um, you know, how are they going to, you know, how are they going to talk to investors? I mean, you know, if you go like a lot of young companies, a lot of startups, a lot of you know, um, hip cool companies, they think um, I've got my the technology that I'd like to file patents for, and I totally want to show this off at the trade show, right? um or i'm going to go talk to like um you know a whole bunch of venture capital people um you know but they'll be scared away if i dare to bring an nda um a non-disclosure agreement <laughs> and you know I, you know and I, I, I'm i like well you know if they're if they're actually good venture capital people they will understand a non disclosure agreement yes. and if this is something you want a patent I mean it's probably not a wise idea for you to be just you know
1: just showing it at the trade show to begin with it,
0: you know you, you become your own enemy you know you become your own prior art you become your own like trouble well,
1: and that's something that happens to me too I get a phone call well I have this product I've been showing it off and selling it for three years I want to get a patent on it now and, <laughs> and, and certainly here in the US your time. Starts running the second you bring it to to a trade show, and you only have a year between that disclosure and actually filing it at the Patent and Trademark Office. I don't know what the the rules are in Taiwan uh, for that, but but here in the U.S., you only have a year.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the clock starts really running really fast. And uh, um, the other thing too is like you know the people you show it to. If you don't have an NDA, I mean, how do you? I mean, there's a lot of countries where if you don't have a, an agreement. Um, You know, then then, you know, how are you going to be able to prove anything later on? I mean, you, I went to a business meeting and I showed them my invention and then they went and they (laughs) built exactly the thing or I showed them all the schematics and I emailed tons of data to them about how to make this. And I was asking them how do they, you know, and then it's like, wow, you talk to the factory exactly about how to make this product. And then you dissed them and went off with a you know, different manufacturer. And now you find out that the original manufacturer is making your exact item. Um, that happens, you know, that happens so much. Uh,
1: you, you know, John, it, it really goes right to the first time that you were on, on this uh, podcast talking about the relationship between uh, the business and a manufacturing company. And that you have to have a solid relationship there as well.
0: Well, yeah, because you have to watch what they're doing. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, just to skip ahead a bit. You know, in terms of the the lifespan of a product, but yes. like, you know, some people they want to go out to Asia. They go talk to like, uh, you know, fifteen twenty factories or something like that in their process to find the one that can make their thing and make it affordably. Right. And you know, um, and the one that makes it really cheaply isn't always necessarily the best one, uh, or the most reliable. And you and you you get around to that, and then they think all right, I am so sick and tired of walking around dusty factories. I never want to go back to a dusty factory again.
1: Um, but you have to.
0: You have to. You have to maintain a relationship with these people or else they will start to realize you're not watching. And, uh, you know, if you have a, an agreement with them about like the number of widgets they're making and this and that. You uh, you know, I've had a lot of clients who've gone to factories in Asia and they um, and they regularly visit to kind of inspect and check things out because that's in their contract. And they'll look behind, um, you know. They'll they'll kind of like you know just carefully look behind certain things, and they'll be like, oh, "Wait a minute, you know, here's a stack of four hundred of our shirts." You know, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, and that that's how it is. I mean, that that's kind of crazy if you do if you do that. Um, so you know, I I think you know when when you when you you see these kind of rookie mistakes, you know, you think, ah, you know, I mean, of course, like, you know, we're, we're, we're in effect, uh, we as lawyers are trying to save our clients, um, you know, one client at a time, but we do see like these nodal points of trouble.
1: Well, I think that, but that goes back to, to some of the, the, the points that you and I have discussed, whether it's here or, or offline, which is one, if you're manufacturing, uh, you need to have your IP registered in that particular country. So even if it's registered here in the United States, if you're manufacturing in China, move all of your your registrations as well into China.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, and and even there's multiple Chinas because that's why. Well, you know, I
1: understand that as well. <laughs> so they
0: they call this like you know the um, the greater you know um, greater, greater China, China, China
1: market is the phrase we've used on on this podcast.
0: And so you know um, you have like a you know Taiwan has a Taiwan Intellectual Property Office, the TIPo. You have yes. like over in mainland China, uh, the PRC has its own that handles patents. You have a uh, uh, you know over in Hong Kong, over in Macau. Although a lot of people. I, I honestly like Hong Kong's not much of a manufacturing hub. I mean, it's quite a good gambling hub. It's a great place to visit. <laughs> um, but a lot of people skip it in terms of the patents. Uh, Hong Kong people will sometimes uh you know, they look at that one as as an important jurisdiction largely because there's a lot of trade shows that happen. Sure. Um, but China's where the manufacturing is. Uh, Taiwan's a place that depending on your industry there may be a lot of manufacturing. Uh so that's that's important to you know keep in mind. And uh but I've had people look at powers of attorney uh that we've sent over and they they look at it and they say, Whoa, uh you know, I thought I was authorizing you for Taiwan. And I'm like, well, yeah, you are. Uh, but this says Republic of China. I'm like, well, you know, that's ROC, you know, the Republic of China. That historically is kind of like the official name for for Taiwan, and that will show up on certain kinds of sure. documents. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's it's a situation that I don't think will get resolved in my lifetime, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how it is.
1: <laughs> um, so I think you and I, uh, the, the number one thought that that we would have here is beware companies that are promising the world. Like, you and I have talked about the review, we talked about a business review, we talked about basically having our clients kind of go slowly cautiously companies that that are promising the world patent really do kind of promise the world they promise not just getting you protection everywhere they promise getting you royalties everywhere they promise you licensing agreements and i mean that's just not necessarily possible in one in one shot no no and actually for companies that are really
0: astute about this stuff i mean i've worked with clients that have um I mean they've got like just tons of patents all around the world for lots and lots and lots of technologies. It's hard for them even to keep up with, you know, the size and the scope of their portfolio and they've just got, you know, I mean they have tons of software that helps them uh, do a great job with that, I guess, but uh uh but you know, it, it's it's funny for us because um you know, as we as we work with these clients, even very professional clients, it's still a struggle um for them, even as a large, well-resourced client, uh, to to force other companies to pay out what they're supposed to to pay in terms of licensing fees and royalties and everything. So, what what comes out of this is that, um, you know, if if large, giant, global companies have um, with all of the resources they have available to them, uh, for them, it's always a, a they have you know salespeople, they have. Um, you know, internal and external lawyers all working on this. And then if you're just, you know, if you're an inventor, I'm not saying it's hopeless or something, but, you know, if you if you just turn it over to a bunch of jokers who are like, you know, who use all sorts of incorrect, impossible terminology to describe what they're <laughs> going to do for you um, and the likelihood of them, you know, uh, taking your... Um, you know, I don't know. You know, a fanciful invention might be something like a, you know, a special device for scratching up, scratching the exterior of pickles or something. I mean, you know, your pickle <laughs> scratcher. You know, I don't know. But like, you know, there you are. You've got your 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 thing, and um, you know, you really should talk to a professional. You really should talk to because because uh, um, you know you need to you need to have some good guidance at the outset. And these folks, these kind of world patent marketing scam folks. Um, are exactly in the business of just, you know, sucking as much cash away from you as possible. That's what made uh, the whole Matt Whitaker situation crazy. I mean, because when people wrote to complain, his response back...
1: Oh, his response was nasty.
0: It was like, oh, here's a quote. He goes, I am assuming you understand that there could be serious civil and criminal consequences for you. I'm like, what? How? How does this happen? <laughs> Like what criminal response? You know, an unhappy customer gets faced with, you know, oh, uh, I'm going to send you to um, angry customer prison.
1: They, they also said that their security team was, quote, all ex-Israeli special ops and trained in Krav Maga. I mean, <laughs> what is that going to do? Are you going to kick my ass You know, because I don't <laughs> like your work?
0: I mean, like, ah, you know, I mean, I try to make my customers happy. I mean, and that's not the way to do it. No. <laughs> uh, client's unhappy. A, a client a client comes to me with a legitimate question about something I've done for them, I have answers. Uh, you've got answers. You know, because a lot of times it's it's communication. You have to build up the understanding because I mean yes. I don't want to send out an invoice that someone doesn't want to pay. You know, I want them to feel that my bills are, are a good value.
1: Agreed. And and also when you're dealing with, with taking intellectual property Worldwide, I mean, I mean, apart from the fact that it's for the most part jurisdiction by jurisdiction, there are cultural differences. Um, you know, my my for example, John, you and I are working on just some 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 copyrights for a client of mine, mm-hmm. and and my client is utterly astounded at how many. Powers of attorney, the the the, you know have to be signed. How many other um, different types of characteriz, you know, different types of points of characterization there are Mm. in the in the uh, People's Republic of China filings as compared to American filings. It's just a lot more bureaucracy. It's a lot more work, and culturally, it's it's just different. And and it's not like we're not obviously. It's not like we're not complying. We are complying but my client just feels culture shock with every little <laughs> item and and, and and
0: and believe me i mean like you know we live out there um <laughs> you know and and we have we get we get shocked every once in a while because because the um uh the copyright office people will change their demands and like you know we have a choice <laughs> we have to make a choice it's like are, am i going to fight this um, and, and in some – once in a while, it's worthwhile to, to fight it and just sure. say, um, you know, this isn't actually required because I just filed one last week. But the other thing is if they've truly changed their standards for the documents or powers of attorney or something else that they want, it's it's not worth fighting because they are not – they're not going to change their position. And. Uh, me going to them and fighting only like weakens the likelihood I'm going to get through this, right. and Understood. it only adds to the client expense. So, but it is it is hard. And I, I remember in the old days, especially like uh, for example, uh, the demands that you the that used to be used very often in Asia uh, now these get attacked through uh, the World uh, uh, WTO trips as being uh, unduly burdensome okay. um, documentary requirements. Uh, and thus, you know, the governments have been able to use that language as a way of kind of curbing some of this. But in the old days, it used to be this this kind of behavior where your power of attorney didn't just need to be lo- uh, uh, signed by someone. Uh, it had to be signed by the CEO. So Bill <laughs> Gates has to sign all of the powers of attorney. And not only that, but it has to be notarized. So you, know, you have to have Bill Gates on behalf of Microsoft uh, signing in front of, a, of a, you know, or Tim Cook for Apple or someone else. But like you'd have to have the CEO signing in front of a notary and that notarized document then needed to be taken to a, a, um, you know, to the, to the um, secretary of state um, (laughs) of that state where the notary to, to have a statement issued that talk about unduly
1: burdensome
0: Yes. And, and, and then the, uh, that had to be apostilled. It had to be like uh, (laughs) authenticated at the embassy, Um, you know, and it gets to be like, it was just insane because it's all just to prove that we're the lawyer's Right. on behalf of that yes, you know, company. And uh so that was that was the way that you know, and and we always had to make the you know, whenever some for example, some judge or some other official would demand something that we knew that like, you know, somebody else had overruled, we could make a decision. It's like, okay, um I can go through all sorts of back channels and then I can Try to find a way to crap on this guy to make him do the thing that I want him to do, and I have to make a decision too. Is like, is yes. he a gatekeeper, or is this somebody I'm going to have to deal? Is this a a true person I'm going to have to deal with later? Understood. Or is this a one time thing? Um, and if this is, you know, if it's a if it's a judge in the middle of, you know, uh, kind of the, the the you know the the far end of the country. Then I'm, you know, uh, I might not ever run across this person ever again. Sure. But do I want to fight this with the client's money? Um, Or can I ask the client to sign a document again? Um, And and I always hated those kinds of choices because I always wanted to stand up for what was right. And every once in a while I had a client who would get so pissed off themselves that they would, in effect, fund that fight, you know, which actually did lead to some progress. Some clients who had hundreds of cases in a jurisdiction, they would decide. They said – I've had enough of this. I am not signing and notarizing and legalizing a hundred powers of attorney every year. I am going to get it done once, or I'm, or, or I'm going to fight this one, and I'm never going to do it again. Um, and that was—I I, I have to say—my hats off to the ones who decided to make the world better for all of us.
1: <laughs> and you know, you know, this particular story that that we tell—it's not just from the the side of being aware of these companies that are selling way too much. Because, I mean, look, I, my, all of my clients get it. You know, Every single one of my clients that register, that files a trademark or files a patent gets at least a letter from some other company promising them the world. And, and of course, all my clients send me an email, what is all this about? And we say circular file. But this is also <laughs> um, but this is also from, from the side of of advertising law as well here in the United States. Yeah. The FTC has a lot of power. Yeah. And once the FTC finds that a company isn't just abusing their advertisements, but are outright lying, outright committing fraud. The FTC has the ability to shut that company down. Well, that's what made it
0: all the more – here was another one of the things that Whitaker used to write. Uh, He goes – here's a quote from one of the emails he sent out. He's like, since you used email to make your threats, you would be subject to a federal extortion charge which carries a term of imprisonment of up to two years and potential criminal fines. And I'm like, wait a minute. Pot, kettle, you know, that's not even that. You know, you're you're like – there you are, actually using you're writing these emails and writing these letters to people to help scam them, yes, out of their money. You're using you know these interstate instrumentalities to like to, to screw over. Now in Asia, what we often run across is the domain name scams.
1: Just to like, oh, absolutely. Pop out oh, I, the... again, once again, a lot of my clients get those emails saying you need to register all of these .ch domains. Oh, and, and you know what it is? Their business is to
0: sell extremely expensive. Um, you know, domain names. They, they will they will sell it to you. You will get a domain name. It'll be just insanely expensive, right? And they'll write false claims in there, like uh, false and misleading claims along the lines of, um, "We are the domain name administrator for all of you know .dot asia," um, blah, blah blah blah. And, and we're like, uh, "No, you aren't. Uh, no, 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 uh, no, you aren't." Uh, and and you you like you know you run a search. Uh, and and you know God bless all those websites that have been you know providing information on scam texts yes. because it helps to for me to explain to my client yes this is actually a very common scam don't fall for it this guy is not mm-hmm. the dot asia dot you know and some of some of my clients have now they they do it as a just kind of as a formality is this a scam I think it's a scam and I'm like yeah it's a yes, scam it's a scam <laughs> that's all <laughs> in the old days I used to have to write a lot more.
1: So, so, so let's let's wrap wrap this up with a thought, uh, since we're hitting the the witching hour. Um, obviously, if a company is offering you the world, um, it's probably too good to be true. And I would also say that I think those who who actually deal with patents and trademarks all the time. Have a very tempered worldview, <laughs> as compared to offering you the world as well.
0: I think so. I think I think it's just in our nature. Intellectual property lawyers, uh, you know, they they tend to couch you know everything they communicate with a you know, a lot of. And this might be frustrating for some clients sometimes, but we 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 don't uh, speak in absolutes. Um, we're I think like good Jedi warriors uh, or, or something like that. I think it was like only uh, as, a, as a Yoda or someone else said, uh, only the Sith uh, talk in absolutes or something like that. But like you know, maybe it was, oh
1: my nerd heart just just, uh, just skipped a beat. Maybe it was Anakin.
0: Someone will correct me. I, I'm sure as soon as this gets posted. But but the long story short is that like you know um you know there's the, the correct advice for a complex situation is never going to be something like oh we'll solve it all for you uh, the correct advice is going to be like you know here's a bunch of options here's here's you know here's where your markets are here's where you make your goods here's where your um you know your competitors make their goods or your possible infringers make their goods and yes. and, and you start to think about territories and you think about you know um you know the chinese term for for patent is uh, you know basically, uh, it's like a monopoly. And I think that's a good way to think of it. It's a monopoly that's that's limited um, in the number of years. It's yes. limited by the geographical territory that you file in. Yes. And it's limited by the claim language.
1: I, I agree with you completely. And even when I'm thinking positively towards a client, like, hey, have you ever thought of being a licensee and taking a license from another company and combining that with your products? Because I think it might be a good business idea but hey let's talk and let's explore and let's you know target the companies let's talk and let's explore is something yeah. that i always say to my clients john thank you so much for for hey this is the third city we've recorded in <laughs> together. <laughs> anthony it's a great pleasure john thank you so much and claude thank you again for recording thank you claude
0: This has been the Law & Business Podcast. Visit vernalaw.com for more episodes. To contact Verna Law PC, send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com or call 914-358-6401.